0: Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. Um, Thomas Wolfe is an author who wrote a novel a long time ago called You Can't Go Home Again. You ever heard of that? can't go home again, that phrase? The book is about a man named George Weber, He's an author who's written a successful book about his hometown. And when he returned home, he expected to receive a hero's welcome. Put me in mind of the lack of the hero's welcome the Vietnam veterans received, for instance, when they returned home from that war. And indeed, this man was was driven out of town by his own friends and family. They felt betrayed by what he had written about them in his book, no matter how true it might have been. And Weber was so shaken by the reaction to that that work that he left his hometown behind to just go find himself. And Weber discovered that those who know you best sometimes tend to respect you the least. And that idea has been a proverbial truth for ages. As a reference to the classic statement in the text you heard read, verse 4, where Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Join me in prayer once more. Father, thank you for your holy and precious words. Thank you for the encouragement that's been offered already. Thank you for the praying of the word, the singing of the word, the reading of the word that we have partaken of already, Lord God. I pray you would anoint the message, Lord. You would bring peace, joy to my heart, rest to my heart this morning as we get into this text, Lord God. We pray that it would bring joy to the hearers, exhortation, edification, and encouragement, Lord God. And also, Lord, that you would be glorified and your Son exalted. The Spirit would fill us. We would be faithful to the Word, Lord, as always. We strive to and be filled with the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. That reaction that that author, that Thomas Wolfe book, is what awaited the Lord Jesus when he traveled back to Capernaum, having demonstrated his power as the Son of God. And he's done it on both sides of the Sea of Galilee, calming a storm, casting out a legion of demons. He healed a woman, resurrected a young girl from the dead. And then Jesus takes his disciples with him about 20 miles southwest to a coastal town there called Nazareth. We're familiar with that. A lot of people don't remember, he was born in Bethlehem, right, the Christmas story, but he was raised in Nazareth, a very small, obscure city there in the town, in the region of Galilee. Population was maybe only two, three, five hundred people. It was considered kind of like a town of nobodies. It's never even mentioned once in the Old Testament. And you're going to see now the shift of the Lord's ministry is going back and forth. As you're going to see in this chapter, it goes from the power of the Son of God, the miracles, the signs, the wonders, to preaching the message of the kingdom and repentance. And he's in super training mode as well, the home stretch, less than a year to go in training his apostles and disciples before he cuts them loose. And so when Jesus returns to his community here, He's going to face another conflict where you don't think he would get it, right? In his own neighborhood. It's a conflict that is going to lead to his being rejected over two factors, questions of wisdom and questions of authority. Let's look at the first one, how Jesus was rejected over a question of authority in the first three verses. Again, it starts with, He, Jesus, went away from there, came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. I should tell you this. This is maybe the one last time he's going to give his neighborhood one last shot at the gospel, at the kingdom. This is his second trip back home for Jesus since he had started his ministry. In Luke chapter 4, you might remember, it sounds similar to this, but it is a different meeting altogether. It was his first visit because he went there solo in that one. No mention of disciples there. He opens the scroll to the book of the prophet Isaiah. And he read at that time this incredible prophecy about the Messiah to come and how he would proclaim liberty to the captives. He would set at liberty those that are oppressed, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. All of those are spiritual terms, talking about inaugurating the kingdom. And then he topped it off when he told them this. Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Who? Here I am. I'm the guy. I'm the one, the chosen one, the anointed. I'm here with you right now. And talk about amazement. Some of them said, is not this Joseph's son? That's disbelief. I mean, how can that be? And we're going to talk about that. You'll hear about that more in a moment. But the rejection then actually was worse than it is here in the text because in the initial visit, not only did they reject him, they tried to kill him. They tried to throw him off a cliff, and he escaped as only he can. Verse 2 says, And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? In fact, the real good modern-day kind of parallel way of saying amazed would be, another translation might say astonished, comes from a Latin word that was a metaphor to describe someone that had just been struck by lightning. They were shocked at what they're hearing. They wondered how he could do and say what he was doing and saying. How he could do the works of his power, dunamis, where we get the word dynamite from. This man's explosive. Or as the other translation, Matthew puts it, where do you get such miraculous power? So the hometown folks, this is interesting, they're just as skeptical of him as the Pharisees and the scribes. And really, if you saw and heard what Jesus is doing at this time, you can only attribute it to one of two sources. If there was a question, how could this happen, you would either say, this is from God, or this is from Satan, which the Pharisees had already taken their position on that. This is Beelzebub. He's the spirit of the demon. Nonetheless, they were blown away by his words and deeds. He got that reaction wherever he went. It says, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are they not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Now, that's key right there. The Nazarenes were actually offended by Jesus. Why? Why would that be? The answer is, comes in a question that I'm going to ask you. Why do some of your family members, your closest friends sometimes, acquaintances and co-workers, why do they take offense with you? How you walk, how you talk. I mean, they can't believe what you say and what you know. It's a pride thing. It's an ego thing. It's about wisdom and authority. Where do you get this wisdom from? Almost this idea of how dare you. And you see this often, by the way, when you have a young adult in your family or an adult period, they come to Christ, the parents are unsaved, the young adult child or adult child wants to bring the gospel and the truth to their parents, and you get that attitude of like, you're my child and you're going to tell me what's happening? You're going to talk to me about God? You're going to teach me the truth? Really? How dare you? The arrogance of that. I think that's part of what's going on here. Or the rub comes when you're Christian lifestyle, you're just living for Christ, like the Bible says, and what you wind up being is like a mirror, a schoolmaster, a tutor, because you're living a righteous lifestyle. And you've seen this. That could be a good thing for someone that hungers for righteousness and seeks Christ. They need to see that. That could be good. But for the unredeemed neighbor that you know, the family member, the friend, they just look at your lifestyle, and they're overcome with personal guilt and shame over their sin. You remind them of their sin, so in essence, it's go away in subtle ways. You don't get as many phone calls, as many text message returns. You know what I'm talking about. Jealousy and envy, they come into play there. They can't. So the neighborhood skeptics, they reject Christ out of some personal offense they took relating to his authority, and they do it in two ways. They come up with two excuses or justification. One about his education, the other about his upbringing, his roots. Who can relate to that? Because it's an issue of credibility. The first thing they say is, he's a carpenter. Tectone broad Greek word that describes generally a person that's a builder. So he could have been a woodworker. That's the tradition, right? Carpenter, the second century church father, Justin Martyr, studied and did say he wrote that Joseph and Jesus were likely woodworkers. They built yoke and oxen for the field, sold it. That could have been, we don't know for sure from the text. But generally, he was some kind of craftsman. He could have been a metal builder like a smith Why does that matter? Here's why it matters. Because he was not what they expected. He was not a rabbi. He was not a scholar. He was not a scribe in the Judaizing traditional sense of that time, which was the means by which you had the authority to teach the word in a synagogue. So the attitude of like the Nazarenes is like, homeboy was a handyman. Really? Really? What business does he have reading and teaching Scripture and doctrine, standing up there in front of everybody? He hasn't studied. He's not educated. So he's no authority. It's like the person that goes to a church and makes their decision primarily based on the fact the preacher is not a seminary grad with a bunch of letters after his name. So that would be the first justification for a Christ-rejector in Nazareth, especially like in John 3 where, you know, you prefer your sin in the darkness rather than the light. And so it's an excuse, really. You love your sin more than the Savior. And you know, this text reading about this, it reminded me of a classic book that the Lord used to bring me to faith about 30 years ago by Josh McDowell, you may have heard of before, called More Than a Carpenter. And he is more than a carpenter, is he not? He certainly is. But then secondly, his family roots now are called into question. Again, it's all about calling his credibility into account. This is Nazareth we're in, okay? He's not from a culturally hip, hot, major metropolitan city like Jerusalem. The natives know that. In fact, the religious Jews had already said by this time, how can anything good come out of Nazareth? What right does a blue-collar guy from the hood, a place in the sticks, with an average family, and by the way, a questionable birth, have to preach to us. Think about it, yeah. Matthew's Gospel tells us that when Joseph first found out Mary was pregnant with Jesus during their betrothal, which was like an engagement time, it says, being a just man and unwilling to put her a shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. So you know what kind of reputation Mary probably already had in the community, right? She's just pregnant before she's married, officially. In Jewish culture, in fact, you'd be referred to if you were being called your name as a son by a father of so-and-so, like Jesus, son of Joseph, not here in this text. He's referred to as Jesus, son of Mary. That's a Jewish way of referring to an illegitimate child. I mean, picture it. An unbeliever, hearing Joseph and Mary tell them the story. You see, the Holy Spirit conceived this child in the womb, and the angel Gabriel told us this was going to happen. And then Mary says, Well, I haven't been with anybody prior to Joseph. Their reaction, right. Gotcha. Run with that. Little did they know at that time They would have other children, Mary would, after Jesus. Unbelievers too, for starters. Siblings. And they would later become disciples. You may have heard of a couple. James. Wrote the book of James in the New Testament. He would be the leader of the early church, a co-leader in the Jerusalem church. Judas. That's another way of saying Jude. You've heard of the book of Jude. The first verse of the only chapter of Jude tells us half-brother of Jesus. So What's happening here is they are killing, taking offense, killing the messenger rather than dealing with the message. They took offense. They were offended by him. The Greek word there is where we get the word scandal from, scandalous stuff here. And oftentimes that word is used to describe like a trap, a stumbling block, referring to like a temptation to sin, broad term, has several meanings and different applications. In the context, or the way it's used here, the word can mean being angered or displeased with something strongly. That's how they were offended with him. And the deal is this. Jesus is teaching. They're brought under conviction, like we talked about, can happen to you, and they just don't like it. So rather than consider what's being said, dealing with it, you deflect it, and again you attack the messenger when you don't like the message no matter how true it might be. Parents get this time to time from their kids, right? Yes, the Bible tells us we should be careful, of have a respectful tone when rebuking or teaching kids and what have you, but, and the Bible tells us they can provoke their children to wrath that way or anger. But if you're serious about family discipleship, shepherding your child's heart like we've been studying in our family group, you're going to find you need to say some difficult things to your children. That's what discipling and discipline, the similar word, is all about. And you're going to find, more often than not, when a child complains about something said to them, it's, not a, it's more about the who and the how as, than the what. Like the old movie line says, sometimes they just can't handle the truth. Biblical preachers get this from time to time, too. If you preach hard truths from Scripture long enough, consistently enough, you're going to get pushback from some people, whether it be a member, a regular attender, a guest, whatever. So you have to be ready for that. Expect that in certain situations. And I'm going to tell each and every one of you, if you strive to be obedient to your faith, to share your faith, to be a witness, share your testimony and the gospel with the lost, here's a newsflash. You're going to get pushback. Can I get an amen? Anybody agree with that? Some of you know that already. It's not a matter of if, if you're being faithful. It's just a matter of when, how often. The more you talk about Jesus, especially if you use the name Jesus, by the way, the more pushback you're going to get. His pushback was kind of like, okay, you're a non-educated bastard child. What do you know about God anyway? Our pushback is a little bit different. His name alone will offend people. And you know that. It's already tossed around like a curse word. Aside from that, you know that most people are okay with referring to the big sky daddy, right? God, generically, he's up there, he's out there. But he's kind of distant, not real, not personal, right? He's on the dollar bill, and we might pledge allegiance to his name. There's a phrase in there. and Entertainers might throw him a bone once in a while at some award thing. Who knows what they really think or mean, right? But if you just mention Jesus today, Jesus Christ in a conversation, that conversation's over sometimes. Is it not true, I won't ask you to raise your hand, is it not true when you've been talking about God before in the Bible, you have hesitated, some of you, hesitated to say Jesus? You normally go like, you know, you should believe in God. But you don't go to Jesus because there's something about the name that offends. You know, the faces tighten up when you say it. The frown comes. Remember, Jesus told his disciples to prepare for this, by the way. Matthew 10, I want to show you a text. Matthew chapter 10. You can mark this, verse 34, 37. This is pretty tough. Jesus and the BRP gave us a tough word today. Here's another one. Jesus speaking, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son more than me is not worthy of me. Whoa. Your brain should be spinning, working, the wheels turning. What does he mean by that? What's going on there? It's not that the Lord took delight in bringing sword to a household. It's not what that's about. He's just plainly saying that the cost of discipleship and being a kingdom can be steep. He's saying expect household rejection. And for Jesus, that extended to a whole neighborhood, a community, a town called Nazareth. Ultimately, the question, as you expect this, has to be, where does your ultimate loyalty lie? When it sounds like he's pitting father and mother against their children and so forth in a household, what he's basically saying is just this, who do you love the most? Not that you don't love them, who do you love the most? The, most. the Lord's already made that point at the end of chapter 3, by the way. He defined for a group. He was teaching who his real family was. and He's speaking, and he gets his message from somebody that his mother and the siblings are looking for him outside. And they actually might have been well-intended. They were looking to actually take him away because they thought he needed to be taken away for his own safety before the religious Jews took him away. And how did the Lord respond to that? You might remember at the end of chapter 3, verse 33. And he answered to them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Who? Oh. He redefines family spiritually. This is the church family. And he's saying that can take precedence in ultimate loyalty and love than my blood relatives. Wow. And that is an important truth, folks. Although the Lord was rejected in his own hometown over the question of authority, then we're going to see how these people are going to be rejected by him. We're going to see how they were rejected in the wisdom of the Lord Back in our passage toward the end of it, beginning in verse 4, Jesus said to them, A prophet, here it is, is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. Maybe an easier way to understand that, the New Living Translation is a modern paraphrase, puts it this way, A prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own family. And then Luke, in a parallel account, says... No prophet is welcome in his hometown. I just think that's the same thing. It's a very true insight. It is. This is the persecution. This is what Christians go through, right? And a prophet, by the way, so you know, was not only a person that had a predictive word from the Lord in Old Testament or early church times, but more of a foreteller of truth, a preacher, proclaimer of truth, And that's what we're hearing here in terms of talking about Jesus as a prophet. But that phrase is very familiar. It's often quoted even by secular writers, right? It's a generally understood truth that you will be dishonored and rejected by those who know you best. That'll happen. Like another old parallel saying, put it pretty well familiarity breeds contempt. Heard that before? Example. Have you ever noticed how two people, one is you're a friend, you're one of the two people, you're a friend or a family member, you want to share something with someone, and then you got this other person that's like a third party expert with a degree of separation, but they're kind of like a stranger. And what you want to do is tell that Someone, something important, you want to share a word of wisdom, a suggestion, an exhortation. It could be everything about fixing your car to the gospel, to a recipe. It's a point of view on something, same idea, you say it virtually in the same words as the third party expert, right, and they will take offense at what you said and they'll say, oh, that third party, they got it right. I, I'm, I'm going with what they said. It was the same thing. Why? Because it came from you. I didn't like that it came from you. The trust, the authority, the wisdom factors work that way sometimes. really is. Jesus knew this would happen when he would come into the world, right? That people just embrace the same things from other people, relative strangers. Listen to the reaction that Isaiah, five, six centuries before, in that incredible Isaiah 53 chapter, what he said about what people would think about Jesus when he came the first time. Isaiah 53, 2, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted by grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. For the most religious people, the most self-righteous people, Jesus would come around and it was like he had the cooties. Get away from this guy, this nobody. Look at his appearance. It is ironic, I think, that the people that should have loved him the most, the religious people, hated him the most. Whereas, we also heard in our BRP this morning, the sinners, the dregs of society, of the community, were the ones that loved him most when they came to him. So what is the consequence of their reaction? Mark 6, again, chapter 6, verse 5. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Now, let me just right away address the point. Theologically, this is not to say the Lord supernaturally physically was unable to display his power in his hometown and heal people. There was nothing about the neighborhood, the community. There was nothing about the water that he drank in Nazareth that would diminish his miraculous power. That's not it. What the first phrase there means is that because of the unbelief of most everyone there, he could not because he would not do any miracles. Matthew's account states it a bit more clearly. It says, and he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. It was a do not, will not. In other words, he refused to demonstrate his powers there throughout that community or city because he knew the people would not respond to the purpose of the power of the Son of God. What is the purpose for Jesus' miracles, signs, and wonders, ultimately? Glory, yes, in terms of people, What's the point? Yes, repentant was to drive people to himself by faith. That not only is he speaking this incredible truth and preaching, but look at the stuff he's doing. He's raising people from the dead. He's turning water to wine. He's feeding thousands. He's pulling fish into a boat like some kind of deified Aquaman. I mean, come on. This is no ordinary human being. He's more than a carpenter. That's why he's doing this stuff in large part. But still, they just can't handle it. They just can't handle it. He refused to demonstrate his powers for those without faith in Nazareth. Kind of like the same principle of salvation you know, they say, well, you people believe here at Christ Community Church about the sovereignty of God and salvation, so that must, be, that must mean that God coerces us to accept Christ. Some have even called God blasphemously a cosmic rapist, making human robots come to faith. You know? But if you, that's not it. If you are truly lost and you want to come to Christ by faith, you will find Him. The Bible says God rewards those that seek Him. So it's not that at all. Faith matters. Human responsibility matters. Repent and believe and you shall enter the kingdom of God, Jesus said. So it's like one scholar said, They couldn't explain him, so they rejected him. And as punishment then for their rejection, his messiahship and his ministry, the Lord just refused to heal more than just a few that had faith. Same thing, like when he told us about in the parables that we looked at in chapter 4, the parables of the kingdom, he said about the religious Jews, they would not have ears to hear the truth, remember? Stiff-necked, obstinate, same idea. Like the Lord said, for the one who has, more will be given. The one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That means light. God had given Nazareth as a town an opportunity to know and believe in Jesus, their homegrown boy, God-man, and they would not. The light that the Lord gave them was rejected, so the town was going to stay dark. The people of Israel just are represented here by these Nazarenes, this spiritual blindness. And still, look at what the Lord does at the end of the passage, the beginning of verse 6. And he marveled because of their unbelief. You know, that is only used that word to describe Jesus' emotion only twice in the New Testament. His marveling, his amazement, both times over faith he marveled at the great faith of a Roman centurion who had faith that Jesus could heal his servant long distance without even going to his house to touch or speak to the servant. That amazed Jesus in his humanity. And here, Jesus is wondering to himself, how could these people, my town, be so close to me, watch me grow up, observe so much of my life, hear my words And not believe in me. That's amazing. So he marveled at that. That word does have an element of surprise to it, yes. Wonder to it. And that speaks to the humanity of Jesus, who wept and was angry and hungered, right? That's the human part of that hypostatic union. He's 100% man, 100% God at the same time. And you see that man part of him just is amazed. But also, that word amazed has with it the idea of disappointment. He's disappointed at the people. Like he lamented their rejecting him Jerusalem-wide. Remember, just before the cross, over what was to come of their rejection of him. And he told the twelve as he's about to send them out to preach, heads up, look for this. But he kept on preaching, the end of the passage, the last phrase. And he went about among the villages teaching. This is after the rejection. Even back and forth in a circle, literally, from the original language, he's going around preaching. The the rejection did not deter him from doing his ministry and his mission to preach and teach. And neither should we be deterred from the same. We have to make a commitment to talk about Jesus with people, folks no matter how bad it hurts, starting with those that we know best and may be most likely to reject you. Why do you say that? Because even though we know about household rejection, Jesus is telling them that that could happen. It won't happen all the time and in every case and with every member. Remember, in your own household, you have a context of conversation. You're at dinner. You're at a family vacation. You have opportunities to share the gospel that you don't have all the time with total strangers. We talk about take five to give five, and yeah, sometimes you don't have five minutes. Sometimes you got 30 seconds in an elevator. That's a tough one. That's a tough assignment for Billy Graham, all right? We do it. We're prepared for that. It's a beautiful thing. Maybe you're checking out at Publix. You're getting your dry cleaning, and you sow a seed or whatever, but your real opportunities, your best opportunities even with the likelihood of household rejection, is inside out, those concentric circles starting with you and your family. Because already you've got an ear, you've got a relationship, you've got a context in which to start that. All right? You have to talk about the person that you love the most, like the parable of Matthew 13. Jesus is the pearl of great price. He is the great treasure. Who wants to keep a treasure to themselves? Don't you want to share the greatest treasure in the history of the universe that you happen to possess? So we have to share that. We have to talk about the fact that Jesus Christ is the central figure in the world, in the Bible, in history. Talk about his person. Talk about his work. You may have to refer to him. Yes, he is God in the flesh. That is your greatest treasure. He became a human being. He lived a perfectly righteous life. He was crucified. He was buried. Then he rose again from the dead. He is the only all-sufficient, all-soul-satisfying Savior in the world. And he's coming again, you have to tell people, to this earth, to judge, rule, and reign over it. And so therefore, person that I love, you want to know him. You want to follow him. You want to love him. You want to obey him. And there's a consequence if you don't. Listen, we think a particular kind of sin is going to damn us. These are like the worst sins you can do. and There are levels of sin and punishment for that for sure that will come from the Lord. But the only sin ultimately that is unforgivable at the end of the day in one's life, you've heard of that, that in this series, is portrayed in this text. Unbelief is what sends people to hell. Rejection of Jesus. Rosaria Butterfield is a former lesbian who is now a Christian author and speaker and married and has a family with children. And she said the message from her pastor that she became friendly with that led her to faith, what got her to reassess Christ was not about primarily her sin being the sexual part, the sexuality. He said, no, not your biggest sin. She was like, really? I, I thought that's the thing for you guys. He said, no, it's your rejection of Jesus. It's your unbelief. Your unbelief will get you into hell. That got her attention. She repented, and she believed. Ignore or hate Jesus, the only one who can forgive you or save you, you are condemned. You are judged. It's all about Jesus. Do you see this common theme, Keep recurring in this series. That's why we're in the gospel of Mark, the servant of God. Because everything, 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 everything that happens in the world will ever matter in the world is about Jesus. That name that so many people reject is the name that we adore, we cherish, we exalt, we lift up, and we share with people no matter how much spit comes back at us. So closing question for you. Is Jesus more than a carpenter to you? And if you struggle with that question, you know what? It's a good thing. It's a good thing. Because Jesus came, as you've already heard in so many places, he came to make us uncomfortable. He does really good at that, doesn't he? Someone once said he came to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. That means change. Jesus is about change. He's not here to just be an example of a good man ethical teacher, pat little children on the head, tell nice stories. That's not what he's about at all. It's not his mission. It's not his ministry. He's the king of the world, and he's commanding everyone to repent and be a citizen, and there's a consequence if they don't. That's it. That's simple. So we have to conclude with people having to come to grips with Jesus Christ. The people of Nazareth got it wrong. The Jews got it wrong. The Romans got it wrong. The cults are getting it wrong. The world's other religions, the atheists, the agnostics, they all have it wrong. And that is why I'll tell you right now, the most important question, again, you can ever ask yourself, if you're a Christian, or ask someone that you think is an unbeliever, even if you might be rejected, is the same one Jesus as the example, asked his own followers, who do you say that I am? That's the most important question in the history of creation. Who do you say he is? Peter didn't get it wrong. He got it right. He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Do you have that right? Can you answer that question affirmatively? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is so clear, your words, not mine, are so clear about what we are to do with you, your person, your power, how we are to respond. If anyone in this room has any suspicions, Lord, that they may not know you as Lord and Savior, May today be the day by the power and the prompting of the Holy Spirit that they confess you as Lord and believe you have been raised from the dead so they would be saved. I pray, Father, that uh, someone listening today or later, Lord, not much later, for tomorrow is not promised to us, will come to faith in Christ today by repentance and faith, just making a turn, a change of mind completely from their old sin and selfish ways. To follow you, to trust in Jesus alone as God in the flesh who paid the ultimate price, the price of his life, so that we wouldn't have to pay that price to have our sins forgiven. And if we believe by faith and trust that it is him and him alone that did that, not religion, not works, then indeed we are saved, Lord God. We would be saved now and forevermore. That blessed assurance is ours that we sang about this morning. Lord, as difficult as it is, I pray the Holy Spirit will do the work of peace, rest, and courage with wisdom and authority from the scriptures for our people that are in Christ despite the threat of household rejection to communicate the gospel clearly to all that they have opportunity to come in contact with and share, beginning with family, friends, co-workers, fellow students, etc., extended family and then working outward as they go on their way, as the Great Commission tells us, as we go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them all to obey what you have taught us, Lord. We pray you'll do that, Lord. Do that work in us. Help us, Lord, as only you can. And in Jesus' name, we all said, Amen. Christ Community Church is a God glorifying, Christ exalting, and Bible centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry, please go to our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's ChristcomChurchCom.org and look for the Giving tab at the top of the home page.